Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode two in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 10th of February. And Leon, today we're talking to Mark Attard, who's the uh, head man and uh, founder of uh, Sanchuro, the place of the Spanish donuts. That's right. Sanchuro started in 2006. It's well known for its Spanish-style donuts and hot chocolate. Yep, and I noticed the followers, the many followers of the Great British Bake Off, uh, they were doing churros last week. Wow, yeah, okay. <laughs> Look pretty yummy. And then after that, we'll be talking to Stephen Kukoulos about the RBA. So let's listen to Mark Attard of Sanchuro. Mark Attard, uh, Sanchuro's taken Australia by storm. You have uh, something like 54 outlets around Australia offering the opportunity for people to dip donuts in chocolate. And this is a business that started out 10 years ago. How did it take off? How did it take off with a lot of blood, sweat and tears, I think is probably the best answer. I came on board early in the early in days of the company when uh, Giro and Kelly were setting it up. Um, they had been travelling in Spain, uh, more specifically in Madrid, and saw a chocolateria called Choc- Chocolateria San Inés, um, and liked the idea of this 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 concept where it was a late night place to go, where people would make as much noise as they wanted. It wasn't refined; it was fun, and you could just bring your friends after a night out and have a relaxing wind down whilst having something sweet, um, very Spanish. And they saw that and thought, well, Melbourne's got a pretty sophisticated um, food scene so why don't we try and do something like this back home um, and that's when they came to me they arrived back in Australia sent out some briefs and I had a little marketing and design agency at the time um, and we looked at it and really thought about well um, what are the things that we think would take on in Australia one of the things that we wouldn't wouldn't take on in Australia and one of the things was that in Spain you would dip your churros into the, the hot chocolate and we thought that was probably too much of a stretch we dip our biscuits into tea here but we don't really do anything like that so we, we made it um, a pure chocolate dipping sauce and people in little dip cups and then people would get the idea of putting the donut into the dip. Um, so that was one of the small sort of changes we made and that seemed to be enough to get people on board. We sell the hot chocolate as well and you buy that separately but we don't tend to dip the donut in it over here. And as soon as we launched, we got in with the Latin community and they kind of give a, gave us our authenticity and came from miles around and, and our first store in Fitzroy went gangbusters. And we did everything we could to get into the media with the limited budgets that we had and did, did um, novel little um, things like like golden truffle competitions where we'd have these chocolate, uh, chocolate truffles that had gold leaf around them um, for media to pick on. They were the most expensive truffles in Australia at the time. So little things like that that you could do as a business that were would catch the media's eye but wouldn't cost you a heck of a lot of money to do. Um, so we had publicity and we had authenticity and I think those two sort of things came together and in Melbourne that everyone wants to try something new. So from there it kind of took off. Where are you located? You're, you're, you're located everywhere from uh, shopping centres to uh, shopping strips? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we we initially opened up in a shopping centre and in Fitzroy and we found both models actually worked for us um, but different kinds of trade so one was more of a day trade the other one was more of a late night trade Um, we're located all over the country the only states we're not in at the moment are Tasmania and the Northern Territory in the early days we really tried to target the sort of the the trendy food areas so we were in your Ackland streets your your Fitzroy Brunswick streets your Ligon streets those sort of you know those sort of areas um, because we wanted to be sort of on trend and market leaders but that that kind of changes as you get bigger Um, so the people that come to you as the adopters in the early days want to be the early adopters wherever they go so as you mature as a business you start looking for for different grants and now we're probably more in your your entertainment precincts in your shopping center so your westfields for instance um and they've changed their model too so they're much more about food in a westfield for instance now so what we do works in perfectly well with them 
Have you been in the food business or the this kind of business before? Or is this a um, my, my personal background is, is pretty mixed in that I, I've always been creative and I've worked in the creative industry. So I was a photographer and a designer. Um, but all through my studying, I worked in hospitality to get through because that's the way a lot of people do things. So, and I was lucky enough to actually manage a couple of places and worked in everything from public bars through to black tie, silver service things. So I had a pretty diverse um, background in hospitality over about probably seven or eight years while I was studying various courses for things. So it kind of came together. It was, it was a little bit the stars aligned kind of thing and it, and it worked out quite well. So I had enough of a grounding in the food industry industry in Melbourne, um, especially, and uh, enough of an understanding about branding and marketing to bring the two together. So um, it's really about people, isn't it? Not Absolutely. people. Yeah, it's, it's um, hospitality is, it's relationship, really. I mean, the quality of the food um, and consistency of food is important, and you've got to make sure that that's right. But if you can't get your staff to be personable and um, represent the brand in a way that you think your brand should be represented, then there's not going to be any connection there. And people aren't forgiving especially in the melbourne food market where you can get a good coffee from just about any spot within 20 meters you're going to lose that trade pretty quickly you not you don't get a second chance so for us it was really important for people to have the right feel of our brand and for us it's that spanish love of life and love of food kind of and thing chocolate become because of this has become almost ubiquitous now you get a hot chocolate anywhere yeah right? absolutely yeah i think i'd, I'd like to think um between the chocolate and churros, we've we've kind of changed the uh, the scene in Australia quite a bit. But um, when we first started, for instance, um, we were doing things like single origin chocolates, and no one knew what that meant. Um, so we were, and whereas now you can get a single origin chocolate in a lot of places, a single, down to single origin hot chocolates in certain places. Um, the thick Spanish style hot chocolate was not to be seen almost anywhere around as well. So we sort of int- we introduced that to the market. And churros, no one knew what a churros was before we came to Australia. A few people who'd been to the Vic Market knew the, the van there, but now I think the, probably about eighty to ninety percent of the community know that they'll say oh churros that's that long skinny donut thing isn't it and that's they they know it so yeah we've kind of changed the landscape i think then you expanded it started in melbourne started in melbourne yeah first store was in fitzroy um in melbourne and we like i said i think we consciously expanded into sort of the foodie precincts in melbourne um, pretty aggressively in the early days the next area we moved to was sydney obviously being a bigger market than melbourne as well and we thought probably a little bit less competitive in the food scene than melbourne um though the way that the the the, the spread of the, the geography in sydney is, is quite different to melbourne as well it's a lot more travel to get to places for um for foodie precincts um so sydney we we attacked pretty aggressively um initially and then we were across to perth after that so you you work on a franchise model don't that's you? right yes so how does that work well, we're a pretty standard franchise model. There's quite a few different franchise models out there, but there's sort of one almost bog standard model where you pay an initial fee to join. Um, you, it's a it's a turnkey operation, so you would buy into the business and you would get you know everything done for you, including training, and we help you even employ all your staff at the start, and we we support you for a couple of weeks afterwards, right through to then you pay a royalty fee. There's a marketing fee, which is um, I think at the moment it's three percent of your turnover for marketing, um, and then a royalty of six and a half percent. So that's just based on turnover. So um, the more money you make, the more money we make, basically. So it's, it's in everyone's interest to be successful, really. And we're there all along the way. So we've got you know business development people who are intimately involved with every franchise store that they're involved with. You know, we one of our business development people just won the uh, business development manager of the year and their franchising awards for the for the country. Um, so it's something we take very seriously. Is that support side of it? We're not just a hand you over a business and then you know you're on your own kind of thing. We we look after you and we all we know all our franchise partners by name. Um, we meet with uh, we have a representative body from the franchise partners that we meet with every month to discuss all the issues and we it's a it's a it's a committee based decision basic process basically with new menu items things like that. We get their input and we take that very seriously. 
The Truro was a, an adventure in a way, wasn't it? How did you go about picking your franchisees? Because it would seem that that would be the key with a very new thing. Absolutely, to get, get it yeah. Um, look, in the early days, it was it was probably a lot harder because you want to grow, and it's all about getting some you know stores on the ground. So and you and you don't have the capital to invest in your own business quite as, as much as you'd like. Um, so in the early days, we were probably a little bit less discriminating. Having said that, though, we've had some very successful franchise partners from those early days as well. And as we've grown, we've become much more picky about who we let into the business. We they interview. It's like getting a job, effectively. So we're not quite McDonald's sort of level of uh, you know you got to put your million dollars up and that kind of thing. But they'll meet the direct. They have to meet at least the majority of the directors before they can be accepted. We have to sign off on them, and each of us have our own things that we're looking for in a person. So from my especially my side of it, which is branding marketing, it's it's very much about that personality. Um, do they get what hospitality means? You know, that's one of the things I always ask them, what, what is hospitality to you? It's not, and if, if they don't give a, a good enough answer about that relationship um, with the customer, then they're probably not going to get the sign off from me because I know it's just such an important element of the business. And the Spanishness of it, basically a new kind of, you, you were a whole new area, wasn't it? New, a new approach to chocolate. Absolutely. And to yep. how you ate it. Yeah, and not, not just that. It was a new approach of, of how you eat chocolate, but it was also a new thing for Australians to think of chocolate being Spanish. Um, and that was the big thing that we really pushed as our, you know, unique selling proposition was that we're Spanish chocolate and we still to this day authentically Spanish chocolate. We import, I think it's around 400 tonnes of chocolate a year just to go in our menu, let alone the retail items. So it's it's a huge amount of chocolate coming out of, you know, boutique manufacturers out of Spain. Um, but people, and our story is really that people don't over here just think of chocolate as Swiss or Belgian or German. But it was the it was the Spanish that actually sweetened chocolate and made it palatable. So the history of chocolate in Europe actually started with Spain yeah, and the con- conquistadors. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they they stole the bean. It was it was a horrible bitter drink that they had in in Latin America. But the Spanish actually made it something that yeah you want to actually eat. Um, and it, be, it was something only for aristocracy. So that's a big part of our storytelling as well is that we actually have the longest history with chocolate in Europe. Um, and you've kind of got the Spanish to thank for what we. But the difference is that the Spanish probably didn't get on the PR band. We're going to market themselves as chocolatiers in the same way that the rest of Europe has. Um, mm. So, But the quality is fantastic. They're actually more experimental with the way they approach chocolate. So they'll do things like um, add yogurt powders instead of milk powders to the chocolate. So it, it gives it a, a different taste. And they're not afraid to do that. Whereas I think when you go to you know the, the Swiss and the Germans, they're, they're probably a little bit more, there's a way of doing it and this is the way we do it. And it's a bit more homogenous, but it's consistent. Yeah, yeah, that sort of thing, yeah. So what are the plans for Centuro? Oh, that's an excellent question. We ask ourselves that all the time. Um, our plans are really, we, we have overseas expansion on, on the horizon. We've had um, stores that we've done overseas before in places like India that were back in the early days that we've actually pulled the pin on and we weren't really happy with the way those operations are being run, but they're a really good learning curve for us. We're certainly looking at markets like um, North America and the UK, but we want to make sure that we're on solid footing in Australia. One of the benefits of what we've done with our company is that we've we've had fits and starts in terms of our growth and we've learned that when you do things too quickly that they can go pear-shaped very quickly. Um, so our investment in overseas is going to be a long-term project rather than just a, we've had a lot, we get probably as many overseas offers thrown at us a week as we do local franchise partners. Um, and we've just got a standard letter where we just say, we're not interested in that at the moment. We've, it's, it's got to be a more of a long-term project for us. Well, we're looking forward to seeing what happens next. And Mark, thank you very much for your time. No problem. Thank you very much. So there it is, Leon, a very successful business. That's right. And uh, he obviously targeted a niche 
and uh, developed it from there. And it's quite extraordinary how it took off. They're, they're very they're very tasty, they're quick, and uh, they suit sort of modern city life. That's right, but uh, no one in Melbourne had been doing anything like that, so he just found a niche. It was a great idea. Yeah, niche and a lot of <laughs> pretty successful business. Now, Stephen Kukoulos' wisdom. Stephen Kukoulos, the RBA yesterday left interest rates on hold at 1.5%, and they have flagged 3% growth for the next few years. What's your view about that? They're taking a very optimistic tilt on things. They're looking at this rise in commodity prices, this lift in the terms of trade with iron ore, around about 80 US dollars a tonne. We've got copper prices, coal prices, a, a range of the broad commodities that Australia produces being much stronger now than certainly six or 12 months ago. And they're implicitly assuming that they remain buoyant. Now, I'm not saying they think they're going to stay at these very high levels, but they're saying that this boost to Australian income, a boost to GDP growth will be enough along with the other parts of the economy to sustain or get to, I should say, a 3% growth rate um, over the next uh, 12 to 24 months. It looks like an optimistic take from me, but it's uh, nonetheless why they've kept rates on hold since August last year. They're, they're thinking that they've done enough on monetary policy and they're just going to let this rise in commodity prices work its way through our economy. But commodity prices have shown to be nothing but volatile. I mean, uh, so surely they, they're not going to stay at that high level. Well, you're dead right. They are very volatile. You know, we've been seeing big moves up and down on on these commodities. And, uh, well, this time last year when the commodity prices were in the doldrums, remember, everybody was very pessimistic and lo and behold, they rose. And now everybody's getting optimistic. My, my concern about the optimism of the RBA and commodity prices is that it's based on a couple of things. First of all, we're already seeing some of the big producers of uh, commodities like iron ore and even coal to some extent ramping up their production again. One of the reasons that prices fell so much you know, a year and two ago was because a lot of firms scaled back their output. It became unviable at you know, 38 or 40 US dollars a tonne for iron ore again. They, they were running at a loss. And so they closed down their production of these marginal uh, mines. At $80 a tonne, all of a sudden, well, obviously these um, mines are now viable again and they're sort of unlocking the gate and um, and ramping up their production. So you're almost certainly going to be seeing not only the big producers around the world, but also the middle middling-sized producers that were under you know, severe financial pressure a year or two ago, ramping up their output, taking advantage of these high prices while they last. And to my mind, we're going to see something of a pullback in commodity prices, not because the world economy or China is particularly weak, but more because we're going to get a supply side response as these prices increase. Dr. Lowe's uh, statement was interesting too, because he was saying globally things had held up quite well, but he was foreshadowing some risks, particularly with China. Now, if those risks come to bear with China, that will have an impact on commodity prices. Oh, indeed. And I think that's the thing. At the, at the moment, um, a lot of the commentary, both economic and sort of geopolitical, has been on Donald Trump and the US, and clearly that's important. And we've, well, I won't say we've taken our eye off China, but it's sort of not got that dominant part in the debate that it should have. Now, that could also be because China's had some just uh, what I might call neutral data for its economy. You know, GDP just a little under seven, your retail sales chugging along. They've got some evidence that some of the, what do we call it, the the bubble characteristics, if you like, of of their property markets starting to unfold. Yeah, so in a, in a way, there's not been a big news item to focus on on their economy or, or anything else for that matter. So we've sort of not really looked at it 
to any huge extent. Now, that said, um, it doesn't mean that it's not not important. You know, it's a dominant economy, a huge demander of raw materials and commodities. So I think once perhaps, hopefully, the dust settles from the Trump type issues, there'll be a bit of a refocus on China, just how strong its economy is. And with that, we'll sort of back solve that to the Australian economy and see whether the Reserve Bank is in fact right that these you know, really high commodity prices at the moment can be sustained. Oh, the other issue is about uh, employment. I mean, uh, they're saying it's, uh, it looks to be ramping up and uh, foreshadowing that unemployment will eventually go down. But the issue is, as you know, uh, companies are very, very buoyant about their prospects, but they're not actually putting on people. Uh, that's the thing from, uh, yeah, the, I do some work with Dun & Bradstreet. They do a monthly survey. And I think you've summarised it really well in that little uh, little comment because, yeah, there, there's optimism out there. Businesses are expecting you know, trading conditions to be pretty good over the first half of 2017, and, and that's fine. It's, it's to be, you know, as we're just saying, commodity prices are strong, interest rates are low. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good time. But when we ask them the question about their expected hiring intentions, they're saying, well, look, we're not really willing to put on more, um, many more workers. And uh, the employment expectation was, in fact, a three-year low. So you've got this interesting scenario where it's, dare I say, the jobless recovery or jobless growth cycle where you're going to be getting maybe okay numbers on the economy in terms of growth and spending and these sorts of things. But when it comes to the labour market numbers and, I don't know, this this strength in um, employment that we really want to see to sort of round out what, what, what we need to see to have a healthy economy. So uh, where do you see unemployment heading? Do you see it keeping, keeping trending up? Yeah, look, on, on balance, I think we're – yeah, because if we just backtrack and have a look at what's happened the last few months, you know, unemployment was above 6% um, – a little over a year ago, it trended down a little to about five and three quarter percent. It's basically stayed there ever since then. And it hasn't fallen further, but nor has it really rocketed higher because the economy is not in recession, but nor are we booming. My hunch is that we're going to see unemployment nearer 6%. A lot of the growth that we are seeing, and you know, we mentioned mining output before, is not very labour intensive. There's not a lot of jobs in the mining part because it's all automated. Where the jobs are, and that's things like retail and services and even construction to some extent, uh, they're not doing all that well. Again, they're not in dire straits, but they're not really growing at a pace that's going to be seeing strong jobs growth. So my hunch is that we're going to see unemployment over the first half of 2017 in that five and three quarter to 6% range and not really falling back to that five and a half or less which is what we really want to see if we're going to be confident about growth yeah, over the second half of this year and into 2018. Well, the other issue with unemployment is that uh, a lot of the jobs areas that are growing are in places like, uh, say, hotels, restaurants and uh, retail, which actually employ casual people. And so you're going to have a lot of uh, part-timers increasing, so you're going to get a lot of underemployment. Uh, RBA Governor Philip Lowe has made it very clear that he's got a bit of a a predisposition to looking at underemployment. That is people who have a job but want to work more hours. So someone who's you know maybe working a 20-hour week but they really want to work 30. And, that, and that's, of course, a problem of the economy. It's a sign that the economy is not strong enough that you know your boss might be saying, yeah, we don't want to sack you. Yeah, we still need you to work, but I can only afford to pay you for 20 hours work. And that's a sign of weakness. And as you touched on there, Leon, I think the critical issue is um, the underemployment numbers, which are getting more of a focus, uh, have been increasing quite sharply over the last little while. So while the headline employment numbers are okay, you know, they're, they're not horrible, they're not great, um, it's sort of masking what's an underemployment component of the labour market where you've got 
a lot of people who have a job, but they're not working the hours that they'd like to do. And finally, uh, the uh, Fed looks at uh, raising interest rates this year. I mean, there's some talk of it being three times this year. And uh, so banks are moving into that cycle. Do you see interest rates rising or would you see another interest rate cut? Look, I think the US is on track for a couple more hikes, you know, even though the recent labor force numbers in the US were were good, you know, strong jobs growth, but a bit of a moderation in wages growth. But nonetheless, I think, you know, Janet Yellen's on that path to hike, yeah, two or three times. I'm, I'm not going to die in a ditch over whether it's two or three. Here, look, as we are just discussing on the RBA, they still are optimistic about the terms of trade. And the other thing that they've got uh, at the forefront of their mind is this housing price boom in both Sydney and Melbourne still. They're acknowledging that that's a concern, that the investors are coming back in. And I guess they're not wanting to throw fuel on the fire with a rate cut at the moment, that is. I think a rate hike, no, we, we can't do that because the inflation rate's just too low and the economy's not strong enough. My hunch is that in the next little while, hard to pinpoint these things, but if we get confirmation that unemployment is nearer six. If we get the next inflation round of numbers showing inflations at two or less, which I think we both get to see those um, those indicators, then I think a rate cut will be more likely than not. And you've got to remember also that the Aussie dollar is on fire at the moment, not just against the US dollar, but if you look at the Aussie against the Euro, Canadian dollar, British pound, for example, we're very, very strong and that's hurting our competitiveness too. And the RBA do like to look at that when they consider monetary policy. In terms of a rate hike uh, following the US, that's probably a 2018 story, isn't it? It would be, yes. There's a there's an awful lot of water to go under the bridge, if you like, uh, between now and the RBA pulling a trigger on a hike. Goodness, we'd, we'd need to see, I, I reckon to get a rate hike, you want to see unemployment approaching five, not just five and a half percent, but five percent. You'd need wages back at three percent. They're currently below two. And you'd need to see that underlying inflation rate accelerating quickly above two and a half. And we're currently around one and a half. There's a lot of things that have got to go right, if you like, for a rate hike in Australia. So for me, it's at, at best rates on hold for a many a long day, uh, but with the possibility that, that we could see a rate cut or two if the unemployment rate ticks up and all these commodity prices just start to tick down a little. Stephen Coolis, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. So how do you read that, Leon? Well, I think it's interesting. Uh, look, uh, the RBA is projecting 3% growth, but that's assuming a whole lot of things. And as Stephen pointed out, uh, people aren't actually hiring workers at the moment. No, and the outlook, sadly, is uh, that may well continue as we get further and further into automated processes, even in the banks and even in uh, uh, financial services. So you've got a whole lot of issues like that, and the building industry is going nowhere as well. Well, that's right. I mean, it, well, their costs are too high anyway in Australia, uh, partly because of the uh, CFMEU. Um, we'll see how that one works out. Now the news. Well, Gary, uh, President Trump took the first step in expunging the 2010 Dodd-Frank Dodd Financial Overhaul Act, which he said hinders business and economic growth in a move that has markets and analysts, uh, analysts eyeing the prospect of bigger bank profits. Mr. Trump signed an executive action requiring the US Treasury Department to develop an outline for scaling back financial regulations. Now, the SEC doesn't have the authority to revoke Dodd-Frank, which is an act of Congress. Nearly 80% of rules under the law are already implemented, but instead the Commission can offer relief 
relief by amending its rules or granting exemptions, a process that is open to judicial review. And boy, did he get a bollocking. Former presidential candidate Senator Bernie Sanders cast President Trump's moves as a betrayal of his campaign promises to stand up against Wall Street. And he said, this guy is a fraud, said Sanders. This guy ran for president of the United States saying, I, Donald Trump, I'm going to take on Wall Street. These guys are getting away with murder. Then suddenly he appoints all these billionaires. His, for, his major financial advisor comes from Goldman Sachs. And now he's going to dismantle legislation that protects consumers. Yeah, it's a conundrum. But then when you look at the White House and you look at Trump and Steve Bannon or Stu, Stu, Steve, Steve Bannon and Steve Bill, they're working on chaos. And that's a political tool. That's right. Totally. It's a total tool. It's, it's all designed to keep people second guessing. And it's very dangerous. Now, dozens of tech companies, including behemoths Apple, Google, Facebook, are siding with Washington State and Minnesota to fight Donald Trump's refugee and traveller ban. The companies filed briefs late on Sunday with the federal appellate court saying the Trump executive order hurts their businesses. In their court filing with the San Francisco-based Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, a total of 97 companies said Trump's travel ban hinders the ability of companies to attract talent, increases costs imposed on businesses, makes it more difficult for American firms to compete in the national marketplace. And the travel ban would prompt businesses to build operations outside the US, said the companies. And the long list of enterprises looking to join the fight against Trump are among the country's biggest, most high-profile businesses like Uber, eBay and Netflix. And the businesses are looking to help Washington and Minnesota as they sue Trump. It can be fascinating to see that court case because uh, these guys have got deep pockets. They can afford that's the That's right. That's right. So it's an indication of where business is coming from in the US. Now, the Turnbull government has ordered the sale of another 15 properties illegally acquired by foreign nationals, taking the total number of forced sales to 61, with a combined total of 107 million. The Treasurer Scott Morrison said foreign nationals in the latest group of forced disposal had purchased their properties without Foreign Investment Review Board approval, and the ATO identified these breaches through data matching programs as well as using information from the public. Breaches of these conditions will result in civil penalties or criminal prosecution, and the latest 15 properties are located in Victoria, Queensland, with a combined purchase price of more than $14 million, and foreign owners come from countries including China, India, Indonesia, Iran, Malaysia, the UK, and Germany. And I wonder if the real estate agents might be getting a bit of a nudge from the government as well, because surely they would ask the guy whether he had FIRB. You would assume that. And maybe the guy lied, but nonetheless, it'd have to be a document. I think that there would have to be some pressure on the state agents. Now, the RBA, as expected, left its cash rate unchanged at 1.5%, as we discussed with Stephen Kakoulis. And as we said in his statement released after the board meetings, Governor Philip Lowe forecast economic growth of around 3% for the next couple of years. Now, on the other side of the ledger, consumer confidence has fallen 0.5% to 117.5% in the week ending 5th of February with people feeling less certain about their finances. The slippage in confidence in the ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index comes after last week's 0.9% rise. Australia's construction sector got off to a slow start in 2017. It remains a contraction according to the latest Australian Industry Group Housing Industry Association Australian Performance of Construction Index. The building industry contracted for the fourth consecutive month with the index registering 47.7 points in January, a figure below 50 points of contraction. The biggest drag 
on the sector was engineering construction activity, which hit its lowest, second lowest point in a year at the start of 2017, and an underperforming commercial construction sector. The house building subsector remained steady in January, rising 4.6 points to 50.2, and apartment building was up 0.4 points to 46.5, but that wasn't enough to offset the deterioration in commercial construction, which fell away 0.3 points to 47.5, remaining in negative territory, and engineering construction, which plummeted 6 points to 42.8. Retail sales have fallen by a shock 0.1% to 25.61 billion in seasonally adjusted terms in December. This was well below analyst forecast for an increase in 0.3%. So it actually contracted uh, 0.1%. It comes as a surprise because it follows a rise of 0.1% in November and 2016 and a rise of 0.4% in October. And it was for December during the Christmas shopping period. Now, retail sales volumes over the December period, eliminating the price of effective price movements seen during the quarter, rose by 0.9%. The figures were dragged down by 2.3% fall in the sale of household goods. This was driven by 6.6% fall in hardware, including building, garden supplies, retail sub- industry subgroups. And it came after a rise in the previous four months. And that was surprising too, because I thought would have thought there would have been a fair bit of few, fair few people um, renovating. Yeah, well, the weirdness is, of course, there's another survey that shows that refrigerators costing $30,000 are a big item for the uh, top end of the market. Really? Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. Now, business expectations for profit and sales for June quarter are soaring, but it will have no impact on Australia's rising unemployment. As Stephen Coolis said, according to the latest DMB Business Expectations Survey, employment expectations have fallen to a three-year low, despite sales, profits, employment and capital investment expectations climbing to 19.5 points for the June quarter of t- 2017, up 3.2 points, 2% from 18.9 points for the March quarter 2017 and up 53.5% from the June quarter 2016. Businesses are not expecting to invest in hiring more workers. The DMB Employment Expectations Index slipped to its lowest point since December quarter 2013. It crashed to 6.7 points for the June quarter, down from 8.3 points in the previous quarter. For the coming quarter, only 16.5% of businesses say they intend to employ more staff than a year ago. 9.9% expect to employ fewer. At the same time, the Employment Actuals index slipped from 4.8 points to 0.5 points, the lowest since September quarter 2013. Now on the plus side, the business expectation index is at its highest point since December 2015. Sales index expectations index has jumped to 36.4 points in the June quarter. The profit expectations index has moved from 21 points to 21.5 points. So businesses are now more optimistic about profits than they were a year ago. They're just not planning to hire people. No, and I think that's a that's a trend we can expect to see for a while. The other big piece of news is that Specialty Fashion, the company behind Australian clothing brands Rivers, Millers, Caters and Chitty Cheek, is set to fall into foreign hands after confirming a $134 million takeover offer. According to the Financial Review, the bidder is the owner of Harrods, Al Afia Holding, an investment company controlled by the Qatari royal family, and Al Afia bought Harrods from Mohammed Al Fayyab more than six years ago. I think it's quite significant because the bid comes at a time when a number of local retailers have collapsed, including men's fashion powerhouses, Herringbone and Rhodes and Beckett, and popular brands such as Dick Smith, Pumpkin Patch, Payless Shoes, Masters and Howard Storage World. Yeah, and the Middle Eastern money is look as though it's going to start trickling in. Interesting. It's right. Now, Ardent Leisure has confirmed that its revenue fell 50.4% to $6.97 million in January following the Dreamworld deaths of four people on its uh, four Thunder River Rapids rise, ride last, last year. In a statement to the market, the company said things were improving, but slowly, with a steady increase in visitation compared to December when year-on-year revenue was down 63%. And finally, Gary, the profit season started. So here are the latest company reports. 
Mining giant Rio Tinto has posted a full year net profit of 4.6 billion, that's Aussie 6 billion, in 2016, marking a $5.5 billion turnaround from the $866 million loss booked in 2015. National Australia Bank has reported a 1% fall in cash earnings of $1.6 billion, with salary increases and redundancy costs cutting into profits. Argo Investments has reported a 9% fall in interim profit to $104.1 million for the six months through December, down $10 million from the same period as the previous year. The lower result has been attributed to some of Australia's top companies slashing dividends during the period. Adventure gear retailer Katmandu has foreshadowed a profit of New Zealand 9.9 million, that's 9.5 million Aussie, for the six months to January 31. This tops its previous guidance. The profit will be in line with uh, New Zealand 9.4 million, achieved in the first half of 2015-16. Transurban's first half net profit soared 42% to 88 million, driven by strong traffic flows and operational performance with about a billion dollars worth of tolls coming in. Shopping centre owner SCA Property Group's more than doubled its first half profit to $204.7 million on the back of an increase in the material value of its investment properties. Online classifieds business class sales posted a 5% increase in underlying interim earnings to $54 million. Revenue rose 7% to $178.6 million. Premier Investments, the company behind Just Jeans, Smiggle, Portman's, JJ's, Jackie Dotty and Peter Alexander, that's a Solid Lou's company, expects underlying earnings before interest and tax to reach $92 million to $93 million, up from $84 million in the same period of year year ago. Revenue is expected to reach about $588.6 million, which is up 7.1% from the previous year. BWP Trust profit crashed 68% to $73.4 million six months to December 31, well down on the $226.8 million in the previous corresponding period. And Simic Group, the company formerly known as Leighton's, booked a net profit after tax of $580.3 million. That's up 11.5%. And the Rio figure and the transurban figures are very, very impressive. And uh, that's it for this week, Gary. And uh, next week, we're going to be talking to um, a guy called Mike Sentonis. He is the vice president of um, American security company CrowdStrike. They have a number of Australian customers, including Telstra. They are uh, now uh, expanding into Australia. And in the meantime, you can catch up with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. Take care, and we look forward to talking to you next week.